This Berkey Guide podcast is brought to you by Walking Around Outside, because nobody paid to be today's podcast sponsor, and Walking Around Outside is free. You can do it in cities, you can do it in rural places, you can do it in wilderness, Walking Around Outside. Now, if you own a company and would like to get your message about something that you have to pay for on this podcast, get in touch. The email is info at berkeyguide.com. Hello and welcome to the Berkey Guide podcast. We have a fun episode today talking to Marty Hall, who, while coaching the U.S. ski team, stumbled upon Telemark Lodge and wound up helping to design and build the Berkey Trail. We have a lot of good stories from the early days of the Berkey and about Tony Wise and the ski team today. I'm actually going to steal a concept from a podcast called Wisconsin Notes, which is put together by the November Project folks. And the concept is that Wisconsin Notes are notes about the podcast before the podcast. I actually don't feel that bad about this blatant plagiarism, because in 2016, I drank a beer on Main Street after the Berkey with the originator of these Wisconsin Notes. So with apologies to Dan Graham, Here's what I'll call the Northern Wisconsin Notes for the podcast today. We'll talk to Marty Hall about how he stumbled upon skiing at Telmark. He'll tell the story about meeting Tony Wise and working with him to lay out and build the Berkey Trail. He'll talk about coaching the U.S. ski team in the 70s and the prospects for the team this year. And yes, he'll tell some stories of skiing the Berkey. That's it for Wisconsin Notes. Here's the podcast. All right, I'm here with Marty Hall. Uh, Marty Hall is probably very well known to people who listen to this podcast. He has been the coach of the U.S. national team and the Canadian national team, but he has a, a, a really interesting link to the Berkey Trail itself. So we're going to mostly talk about that. But Mar- Marty, first, welcome to the Berkey Guide podcast. Thanks, Harry. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, I love talking about the Berkey. <laughs> well, well, <laughs> that that makes two of us, and everyone else has been on the podcast. If you hear noise in the back, what's your dog's name? That's Sweetie. All right, so that's, if you hear noise in the background, that is not us poking around this dog. Um, he's very, very friendly. Uh, we're at his home in Durham, New Hampshire, surrounded by ski memorabilia and other things. This, this is a museum. Mm-hmm. There's, Her uh, family, my family, and every, all the activities we've done. Yeah, Cal- the, I see Calgary, I see Lake Placid, so on. Right there. Yep. Isle of Berkey uh, bibs right there. Yep. And well, medals. I, yeah. I can't, if you came to my, my, my house, there'd be on my wall too, but not as many medals. Um, so, really quickly, uh, why don't we, I want to get in, we're going to talk about the Berkey Trail and sort of how you almost accidentally got involved with it, but I want to just talk about your background first. How did you get involved in Nordic skiing and then with the, uh, with the, to the level that you, you did? Well, the first thing, Ari, is I'm old, so it's going to take people a while to maybe catch up from where I'm starting from. But in, uh, right after World War II, my parents moved to Guilford, New Hampshire, and all they talked about when we were headed, or we knew we were going is that you would be skiing and I just uh, was totally excited about the fact that I'm going to be skiing so, um, and so we along with 10 other families arrived in Guilford, New Hampshire uh, together and uh, the fathers, everybody bonded uh, the kids after school, that's us um, were on their skis or playing in the backyards or playing at the church, football every, after, every afternoon we were playing we all had bikes. Uh, there were big balloon tires, uh, yep. but not fat tire, but balloon tires, and we rode everywhere. Uh, and Guilford had a beach, and we'd ride down to the beach in the summertime every day and take lessons and back home every day. Uh, we were very active. Uh, we had two or three mountains, um, uh, Gunstock and uh, Belknap, that were 2,000 footers, and uh, 
we did spend a lot of time up in those mountains and just running, just running around and being active, and uh, really bonding as a group. And uh, you know, um, the fathers got together, threw ten dollars in a pot, so that gave them a hundred bucks, and uh, they bought an old Model T Ford. My dad was a mechanic type person, and they turned it into a, a, a rope tow. Mm -hmm. and uh, got a farmer to let us put it in his uh, pasture and the Guilford Outing Club began and uh, there's a saying that it takes a village to build a champion and uh, it was nothing was more true than that when uh, uh, out of this group of young skiers every uh, all the families had about two kids three kids all the same age bracket so that's why we played together and we got along really well and out of that group came three Olympians Wow. Okay. Followed by the name of Dick Taylor, who was on the 1968 Olympic team. Mm -hmm. uh, Penny Patu, uh, uh, who was uh, in the 1960 Olympics, won two silver medals. And then myself, uh, my my career or my history internationally would be the U.S. ski team for eight years and uh, the Canadian team for ten years. And, uh, and some of the accomplishments were, of course, Bill Koch won a silver medal. And that was our program, doing that. And then uh, when I went to uh, Canada, uh, Pierre Harvey mm -hmm. um, was winning World Cups. And uh, those were all breakthrough moments And uh, because no one before these people had ever really been anywhere in regards to results. So um, then uh, other things that I did was uh, were um, um, the... Uh, trail system um, at Thunder Bay. They had the mm -hmm. World Championships in '95. I built that trail system in the and stadium complex. Brought forward uh, a new idea about shorter loops. Loops used to be 10, 15, and 25, maybe even 50 kilometers long. I shortened them up so that they were two and three kilometers long, yep. and people were coming through the stadium. It was like being watching on television when you're in the stadium. And athletes going every way, which way, and now it's what we see all the time. Yes, you do. Yeah, and so that's you know, so um, I was lucky, and when I went to work for the U.S. ski team, because we were turning a corner from old-fashioned skiing to new fashion, and the thing that uh, made that big change was grooming. And mm -hmm. my first uh, job was with the United States Eastern Amateur Ski Association. I was their Nordic program director, and I happened to see I had been in the biathlon before that up in Alaska with the biathlon team the national team, and Sven Johansson was the coach. And I saw a drawing of a track sled. You know, before this happened, we just used to stamp the tracks in yep. and then ski them in. I saw this track sled. I built one with my father, and um, pretty soon every Friday night, you knew where I was, out in the woods somewhere in New England, setting tracks, yep. tangling with trees and plowing off the side of the trail and everything, but it, it was a big breakthrough. And then grooming just grew and grew and grew to the, where it is now with the big machines and, and uh, the multiple tracks and uh, different uh, platforms and all that stuff. So, um, uh, I mean, everything changed that next 10 or 15 years uh, in the sport. Poles, boots, bindings, skis. Uh, waxes, uh, clothing, I mean, everything. So I was really lucky to be in on the cutting edge. Yeah, so you, you showed up and it was leather boots with three-pin bindings. and Yeah, and there was a lot of things that I got to do, be the first, like 
this track setting, I was the first to do that. And then pretty soon, every every club had a had a track sled, and yep. you know, and uh, they did their own tracks. And then uh, it just the synthetic skis they required different things. And uh, one of the things that we came out of with a camp that we did in Cook City in 1975 was. Um, um, the, the kick zone, yep. we designed that. The uh, ski companies and the uh, wax companies wanted you to be on uh, 50% of the kick zone on each side of the balance point. And we, with some help from a fellow by the name of Don Johnson, who was a product manager for Track Ski Company, uh, was at our, came at our, came to our camp in Cook City and said, we bought fish scale last year and we put it on the whole ski. And we thought it was going to be a great ski, and it just turned out to be awful. Yeah. Uh, so I'm here to find out where I should be placing these fish scales. So that got us going. And we ended up designing this zone that came finished at the heel. Yeah. Which was another four or five inches of uh, glide. Our skis were faster than anybody else's. The other thing we started to do, the uh, wax companies wanted us to use just a universal wax for glide. Yeah. Okay. And um, we, I had just hired a s assistant coach, who had been on the U.S. Alpine team. I mean, the timing is weird. I mean, how do these things happen? And you know, in your favor. And so then we started experimenting in Cook City with uh, Alpine glide waxes, uh, because you know you think about oh, Alpine glide waxes. Well, they put them on their skis, and they only go for two minutes or three minutes, and they can't. That wax doesn't last. Well, we started doing tests, endurance tests, to see how long the wax would, and the wax lasted. So yeah. when we went to Europe, to the world, to the Olympics, that winter, we yeah. had this new pa pocket, and we had uh, new glide waxes. Nobody else had it. Yeah. And uh, Gerhard Toller, guy who uh, was the uh, Fisher racer chaser guy for skis, after the first couple of races that we did in Reinerwinkel, he said, uh, "Hey Marty, what are you guys doing? You're doing something different." He said, they're all your kids, when they head into the woods after going across the flat and downhills, they're 10 and 15 and 20 seconds ahead of everybody else. And he was, it was really kind of very funny, those first races in Reitenwinkle. They didn't even, they weren't even doing split times on our races. And all of a sudden in the race, uh, there was athletes yelling at coaches, saying, you're giving me the wrong splits, the Americans. You aren't even timing the Americans where be uh, an American just passed me and you have me beating him. And this screaming went on and on. And we had 10 guys on the team that were going to the Olympics and all 10 of those guys were in the top 15. And that was that was, that was one of the monumental uh, breakthroughs. Um, well, that was the fall that I got contacted by Tony Wise uh, about the yeah. Berkey. And Tony Wise, of course, the, the founder of the Berkey, and this is, what, 75? 1975, yep. yeah. So it was kind of like maybe the second... So the, Berkey was started in 73, and the first couple of years, they were just basically and skiing along roads, roads and yep. whatever right. was out there, and they put it together. Yeah. And so uh, he had... Well, so in, in October of 75, uh, I got a phone call from him, and <laughs> I can remember it so, so clearly because Tony Wise here... And just as fast as you can talk. I, mean, yep. I, I can't talk that fast. And you're yeah. not a slow talker yourself. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway. That's good, good for the... Uh, good for so anyway, Tony, Tony um, said, uh, I, I understand you're going to be in Minneapolis in, uh, uh, 
in a couple of weeks, and I want to get you out here to the to Telemark Lodge and show you our trails and everything. And I said, well, I don't think I have any time in it during that clinic. I said, uh, you know, to drive over, it has to be three or four hours. And he said, don't worry about that. And uh, he said, uh, when can you be uh, when, when can you be available? And I said, uh, four o'clock Saturday afternoon, and I'm going to have two or three coaches. He said, okay, uh, be in the lobby. That's all he said. <laughs> so I went down the lobby, and... Uh, there's some guy waiting there for us, put us in the car, took us out to the airport, one of these single engine, maybe a two engine plane, flew us to, to Telemark, right up the runway, into that parking lot that they have out there for all the airplanes and everything. Yeah. Right, I mean, you could look up and see the lodge. I mean, that, that was a blow away, really yeah. a blow away. And you knew when you saw that, and, and, and it was just still a little bit light, you know, we could see. It was Alpine Hill, and you could see the lifts, and you said, well, he's got got a program here, that's for sure. So he piled us into a two Cadillacs and took us out to a place that's famous, famous on the World Cup Trail, not mm -hmm. only uh, called Twyla Falls, that came with history at yep. the time, and uh, showed us that, and showed us that, you know, the one thing you did notice, that his trails were groomed to the nth degree, they all had grass, and yep. there were there were no rocks, no no junk around. Uh, and then he took us down by the uh, septic system, and yep. we looked at the trail down there. Yeah. Okay. Now this is at night. This is in the dark mostly. Well, it was four o'clock, hour okay. over, hour and a half. There was still some light. Yeah. And we had the car lights, sure, so we could see the trail bed and all that yep. kind of stuff. And uh, he showed us some maps, and we were. It was the people with us were Jerry Berard who is one of his managers in the mountain, and then a boy, guy by the name of Bob Treland, who is one of his working type guys, lieutenant, yeah. I guess, I don't know. So anyway, um, we did that, ran around, and then he took us into, he has this one dining room in the lodge with the big fur uh, logo of the Berkey, and yeah. the, with the guy skiing yeah. and all that stuff, and sat us down and brought out the fillets and the, <laughs> a meal to beat all meals, and um, we just general chit chat and everything else, you know. And he says, uh, you know, and time was over. We went back to Minneapolis, and he said, "We'll see you sometime. Don't worry." And um, you know, he, he we made no plans, no agreements to anything, and um, so um, I, on the way out of there, I I told. Uh, the coaches. I said, it'll be a cold day in hell before we come back to this place. He didn't have any hills. And I was going to eat my words. <laughs> but So we went off to Cook City and did our camp. Uh, November 1st, we were in Cook City yep. skiing for the whole month. Uh, we didn't realize what we were doing at that time with altitude, but we were living at 7,000 feet and skiing at about 7,500 feet, which uh, boosted the oxygen. Yep. And for a month, that was, I mean, that was cool. And it would be thought of as being very cool nowadays. Yeah. Um, so uh, we broke the, broke up the camp at Thanksgiving time and went home. Everybody got to go home for four or five days. And the reason why was because I had planned this. The way I did was that I knew we were going to be in Europe for a long time. Yeah. And that uh, which is very similar to yeah. And we were going to be on the road. Period. We've already been away for a month. Yeah. Uh, continuous. And so we were supposed to go from there to Quebec City for another camp, and I'd get a call, you can come today or tomorrow, and then I'd get a call in the morning, no, don't come, it's raining, 
And that went on for three or four days, and I started getting a panic because we needed to be back on snow. Yeah. And so I called my uh, program director and said, "Hey, um, Jimmy, we need to we need to find a place." I said, "I can't go all the way back to Cook City or out west. I don't want to go uh, go to the nearest place." And I said, "The nearest place I can think of is Telemark." But I'm, I'm, I'd be surprised if they have enough snow or whatever. So I called Tony. And uh, I also sent uh, one of my athletes, Doug Peterson, mm -hmm. who lived in Minneapolis. Yep. And he was on the team. He went over and took a look. He said, everybody in the world uh, that lives around that place is shoveling snow on those trails. <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, Tony was making it so we couldn't not go. Yep. I mean, uh, and I was willing to bite the bullet to not have to travel any more west because yep. I didn't want to add time zones on the trip over to Europe. Yep. And uh, so we arrived and just like we thought, uh, he didn't have as much snow as he said he had or made us think he had. Yep. But anyway, uh, it turned out that they had shoveled. Uh, they were doing a great job of grooming what they had, mm -hmm. uh, you know, not wrecking and damaging and pushing the snow off the trail and so and the other thing that worked out beautifully for us there was that we could walk out the door and be on the snow yeah two minutes no yep. cars nothing and you know that and and when the workout was over back in the thing that's great about that it gives you great flexibility athlete comes out tired didn't sleep well hey go back take a nap yep okay you get sick being inside Hot shower. And, you know, all the good things that could happen with that kind of setup. So we got near the end of that camp, which was just before Christmas, and we were supposed to, after Christmas, go to Lake Placid for our tryouts. No snow. <laughs> Down in Tony's office. And, of course, during all of that, Tony and I were two type A's. Yeah. And type A's don't usually get along. But, oh, man, we had a, you know, it's just a really easy and friendly relationship that developed um, so um, went in to see him and say hey we need a trial place you uh, can you do it and the other thing you know that place was popular oh the yeah alpine well, skiing with alpine skiing like yeah. and I'm wondering all along I said where the hell are all the alpine skiers going because yeah. he's we didn't take that many you know we took probably 20 rooms I mean it had mm -hmm. 200 rooms yeah 20 30 rooms and uh, I was wondering where he was sticking all these other people, but he said, don't worry, that's my problem. I'll take care of that. And so all of a sudden he's getting bibs made and uh, we're uh, uh, getting, in, yep. getting in the groove to bracing. And uh, we had a really lucky break. The uh, Canadians found out about us, that we were there. Yep. And they were somewhere in the Midwest or wherever they were training. And they said, we're going to come down and we want to race you guys. Yeah. So they sent one of their coaches down, uh, a guy by the name of Andres Lennis, and he was um, uh, ex uh, national team member in Norway. Yeah. B team, A team, and uh, so he he was a ego guy. Nor yep. I'm a Norwegian like mm -hmm. they are. Okay, and so he came down there, and we were having a time trial, and he said, "Hey, can I get in the time trial?" I said, "Sure, no problem." Um, so I knew what he was doing. And so I stuck him. <laughs> he was in, he was Tim Caldwell and Bill Coke started right behind him. Yep. And within three Ks he was back. <laughs> oh, not a good day for racing. <laughs> 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 the boys had gone by him, 
But he got what he wanted, an evaluation of where our guys were, and they, you know, they were good. Yep. They were doing well. And so um, we ended up picking a team off to yep. New York City, off to Europe. We went to, um, so we had been altitude, low. Now we're going back to altitude yep. in, uh, in Italy at Sizer, a place called Sizer Elm. Mm-hmm. Um, and now what did, what did, what did, uh, what did Tony Wise have for Nordic trails back in 75 when you were there? Was there, um, there were more, much? more recreational. Yeah. Okay. I mean, there were no long climbs, uh, nothing too uh, steep. No, no, uh, there was some, there nice. was some stuff, yep. but, uh, trails, what do I want to say? The, the terrain is so variable there, yep. you know, and you get these, all these little pockets and everything. Mm-hmm. So whoever did his trails didn't really know what they were doing to, to, to develop a rhythm yeah. or uh, then there would be long flat sections and then you'd get into these kinds of things and yeah. uh, so, but you know a race is a race is a race sure you know you you, you put those and bibs on and you click that watch you have snow on the ground and that's somebody's gonna figure it out yeah and they're gonna go fast and so it wasn't a limiting factor it was just that it was different and it you know as I ended up spending more and more time there, everything changed. We, yep. you know, figured out how to take um, advantage of what the good stuff that they did have. And um, during that period of time that we were there for the um, the first camp and then the tryouts, Tony and I spent a lot of time together, talking and talking and talking. Yep. He said, "Well, I've got some stuff I want you to do for me in the springtime," and so that was, you know. Yep. But uh, the winter, uh, when I look back, it's you know it's easy to talk about it now because when I look back, I can't believe how many good things we did for ourselves. Yeah. You know, for, like I said, from Tony's place where we're down with we're down um, flat. We wanted to race fast. We wanted to do fast speed work and that kind of stuff. Down low, you can do it. Mm-hmm. So then when we went back to Europe, we went up to altitude again. We were up at 7,000, just right at 7,000 feet in a place called Sizerum in Italy. Yep. And it's, if you ever want to go over there, you want to go to this area. I'll tell you, it, you'll fall in love. It's, I uh, think the team still does camps. Everybody does. Yep. Everybody does. I mean, we, I had discovered this place when I went to a German training camp one spring, one early summer. And um, and it's uh, so it's a combination of Italy and Germany, Germany from World War Two, and a big involvement. They in this area they speak German. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, Italian is the first language, but they speak German. Cuisine, mixture of Italian and German. Uh, we were in a uh, pension. It was we were the only ones in there alone again. And the, 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 they, they knew we were going to the Olympics, mm-hmm. and they trotted out the best of everything for us. Yeah. I, you know, they were the best hosts, the best food. Um, and the skiing uh, was beyond, it just was, and, and you know, it just, I, I think of that place, and um, they had, plateaus mm-hmm. with long gradual climbs and then they had this place up back where we went up to 75 7800 feet yep. so we were skiing high again and they had a, a really a international loop up in the back there with big oh it was just it couldn't have been better yeah and our 
our whole training, you know, even though we had these hiccups with Mount St. Anne and Lake Placid, we went through those without them being hiccups. Yep. They turned out to be probably better than what we would have gotten if we'd have gone to those places. And that led into one of the most successful Olympics of well, the U.S. team. At that yeah. time, yes. We, uh, Koki got his medal, of course, and uh, team in relay, uh, they were sixth, best ever. Yep. Uh, we had other best ever results. Uh, um, and so many things were born out of that medal, that yep. like that spring. Uh, when we did our spring camp, we had an official pool. Uh, we had contracts with the companies. They were paying pool fees. They were paying the athletes money. Uh, Koki was negotiating with Fisher and uh, Rosignol. I mean, all the companies were in there paying us fees, pole companies, boot companies, bindings. So um, we we're, we're now really an international program and yep. team. There's no doubt about it. Um, all, so the Olympics became the Olympics, their history. So whenever I would hear about the Olympics being somewhere yep. or the World Championships being somewhere, so usually four, four to six years out, mm -hmm. okay? Within a year of that announcement, I would be in that area identifying the start and finish areas, okay? And then finding the best hotel to take advantage of being there. And I used, to, I don't know if I can swear, but... I pissed, off, I pissed off a lot of coaches out there from other teams. Yeah, I can remember one World Juniors where I got the hotel, the only hotel that was really near the start and finish area was in the same parking lot that start and finish area was on the other side of, and I got there before the Italians did. And that guy, when he found, <laughs> when we got there for the year before when we went to do some test events, the Italian coach, he, wouldn't, he wasn't smiling at me. So, you know, so I, I, we did this also in Seyfeld that year. We yep. had a hotel. When I, when I rented the hotel, I didn't realize they had an annex. So we weren't in the hotel. We were across the street down this alleyway in an annex, and so we were hidden. So people couldn't find us, okay? So it was really quiet. Yeah. And uh, we didn't have to put up with, you know. Of course, we weren't famous yet. Yeah. But we were becoming famous, so... Uh, so the season ended, and you got back to the back to the states. Yeah, what, did, what what was your involvement then with the with the Berkey Trail? Well, what the happened then is that Tony had said, "I have some things for you to do," and he called me and said, "Look," um, but one thing he never said to me until I got there. I know I didn't know that Sven Wick had already been had laid out the trail. Mm -hmm. Didn't know that at all. So I went there. Then. And so what had Sven Wick done to lay out, like, had he surveyed? Well, what you do, one? no, it's not a big survey. What you do is you cruise. Mm -hmm. We call it cruising. Yep. And you go and cruise the terrain, quarter this way, yep. this way, and find out what's there for terrain. Well, my situation became different. You didn't do it that way because he already put the ribbons out. Sure. So when I got there, it was early May. Yeah. And um, leaves are coming out. And there's a lot of beech trees there. Yep. And so the ribbon he had put on was this color. This is the beach. Okay. I have a yellow, beach. yellow shirt on, yeah. And the beach. <laughs> same the beach color. The beach same color. So I had to have this guy, buy, you know, usually what I would just do is walk, walk and go from flag to flag mm -hmm. to flag. So I'd, you know, Bob would be at one flag, this Bob Treeland who worked for Tony. Yep. He and I went together. and I went the first day, did nothing. Essentially nothing. So I told Tony, I've got to have somebody with me. They said the ribbons are all, all the wrong color, and I, I'm not. You know, I'm going to be here for 
two weeks figuring this whole thing out because I go out and find the ribbon, then have to go back and find the ribbon. So yeah, and so anyway, like walking through a fog. You got it. And so um, I then once we got organized on how we were going to coordinate and on how we were going to do this, I started walking his trail, and um, at the end of the first day. It was, oh, God, I couldn't believe how... I was out there in long pants. Mm -hmm. And here it is, May. should be cool. Yep. It was like, it was a July 4th day. Yeah. 90 degrees, hotter than hell. And so I walked the first morning and uh, went back and got in the car and we went to lunch at... Uh, he has a place there called... What's it? Lumberjack Village. He has the Lumberjack Championships. He's had oh, them yeah, 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 yeah. Okay? So I think it's called, uh, whatever it's called. It, so I went and had lunch there, and I'm sitting there and saying, what the hell, something's in my pants. I'd never had an experience with ticks. Mm -hmm. I went in the bathroom and hear about eight and nine ticks Ooh. going up my Ooh. going up my legs towards my crotch. Yeah. So became a... <laughs> Tuck your pants in <laughs> Tuck your, your pants. And, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, got that done. I can't tell you to this day whether I changed ten flags or a hundred or change the course in any way, shape, or form. I mean, it was such a project. Mm -hmm. Okay? I just, all I know is, all I can tell you is when the trail was used, in other words, built and then was used as the Berkey Trail, Europeans said they loved it. Yep. That's all it counted <laughs> to me. If they're saying that, then, uh, then they, uh, then it, you know, and it has stood up to the test of time. Yep. There's things that had to be changed. I'm sure. surprised. Uh, I, I'm sure you know um, Snowmobile Corner, mm -hmm. where they yep. all pot, the yeah, guys the sharp left hand that corner, yep. that left hand corner. Um, that was bad from the beginning. Yep. But in this, I don't know. It may still be there. It's still there. And it's, it's, it's fun. A, it, oh, it's, it's it's fun. You know, if you're up front, it's fun. If you're later in the race, it gets uh, icy. So I got to tell you a story about that. Yeah. So one of the one of the uh, Berkeys, mm -hmm. um, ABC was there. Yep. And they wanted to do a helmet cam run up the the Alpine Slope. Yep. That they used to do that. That's when they started just up, 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 up over Mental Mark. Yep. All 5,000 people all together. That, yep. yep. And then turn the corner and head down. And then at the back of the building, I was to give up my way battery uh, belt mm -hmm. and the camera. And I then go on with the race. Yeah. So it got me... You know, as I'm taking the belt off and the helmet off, yeah, people going by <laughs> the hundreds. So, and back then I was in pretty good shape. And this wasn't a little GoPro. This is probably a big. Oh, gee. there's a helmet. Yeah, with a cam with a, a camera, camera bolted to. on it. Yeah, it was on the side. Yeah. And the the ironic part is, is I did this, and I mean it was heavy, really heavy. Yeah, and with the belt, the battery pack was you know it was a big yeah. Like you see those deep sea divers doing, and so I got way behind, and so um, I was catching people all over the mm -hmm. place. I came to a couple of those downhills, and uh, you know people were waiting at the top, and I just always zoom by. Hey, get back here! Get back here! You can't do that, you know. And I said, "Come with you guys. You you should do what I'm doing." Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going down snowmobile corner. Mm -hmm. And I'm on the inside. Yep. And I catch this lady. Okay. And I said, I'm right here on your left side, ma'am. 
And I said, don't panic. I'm going to put my arm around your waist, and we're going to go around this corner together. And we made it. <laughs> she, she just let me take her around the corner. It's, it's, a, it was, it's one of those thrills that you'll never, I mean, I just can feel it. I yeah. remember it, you know, and it just came together, and she did the, you know, she listened to, and I would use, I was smart enough to use a nice low voice, you know, and not yell at her or scream and say, "Hey, you're, you know." So, yeah. So she didn't panic, and so we did it, uh, and that's one of the things about the bird. Oh my God, hundreds of memories. Yeah. Hundreds of memories, right from the beginning. So, one of the things about uh, in, in us establishing our relationship. And of course, I was seeing a lot of days. This he, is you and Tony Wise. Me and Tony. Yeah, yeah me and Tony. He wanted me. Uh, he wanted me to come back in a lot. And I said, "Hey, you know, this is slowing down the process here, and we're trying to get this thing ready for next next winter." But he was. Do you play tennis? I said, "I can play." Okay, match first match tomorrow at noontime. Be here. So Bob Treeland would have to bring me back in. If you haven't played tennis, of course you're not going to, but it, it, what a scene. Tony's not much of an athlete, mm-hmm. okay? And um, he, the way he... Have, have you ever seen him? Uh, not not in person, no. He no, okay. died many years ago. Well, he walks like a frog, mm-hmm. you know, feet wide apart. And yep. Boom, 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 boom. He better be ready to go and, he's, and, and talking at the same time. Yep. So he wasn't very fast on the tennis courts and he wasn't very good. He wasn't an athlete. Okay. Mm-hmm. But he had a, a remarkable um, backhand-forehand combination, okay? Yeah. So if the ball went to the left and he was right-handed, he wouldn't go over and try and backhand it. He would switch the racket as he was running from his right hand to his left hand and then try to hit the ball with his left hand. And then if the ball went the other way, he'd run back across that way and switch the racket back from his left hand to his right hand. So it was kind of a, you know, but... Um, and competitive, oh my God, yep. oh my God, slam his racket, whatever, but that was just another you know bonding th- situation for us and yeah, and you know he was paying me, and um whether I was playing tennis or out there doing the the, the trail, but we did have a timeline yeah now you were you were still coaching the team at this point, yes, it was, so this was sort of an extracurricular for the spring. yes, now. it was yeah, and uh, did you, you do year round the same kind of year round training they do now, or is it more on your own no 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 we had camp, yeah. uh, we we were starting to have our camps in may yeah. beyond snow in may mm-hmm. um, and uh, get re get organized uh, we would have a whole schedule of what was going on with the with the program for the yeah. year. Here's your contract. Can you be here for these? Mm-hmm. Sign up. Don't sign up if you're not. Yeah. And so we were really, like I said, at that point, the, we went into a new level or a new focus of organization. Yeah. And we became real professional. But you were really learning that at yeah. that point. Oh, yeah. Early and on. Yep. Uh, so the other thing, one of the things that I decided, and I said it any number of times about when I took over the program, finally mm-hmm. in, 1972, that's when I became a full-time coach. Yep. Uh, this guy, Belfonts, made that move. And uh, before that, I used to be paid for nine months and had yep. three months in the summer. And we would do camps, but not. we just became so much more formal and really focused and professional. So that well, what were you doing with that spring? The trail had been marked and you were just... They, okay, so like I said, and then what you do is uh, you go back and check it and then... And I'm not sure if this happened at this time, but at one at, at a point, Tony couldn't make up his mind which way he wanted to race. 
Cable to Hayward or Hayward to Cable. Yeah. I said, hey, you're going to make up your mind here some point, at some point because you just can't lay out a trail. If you're going to lay out a trail like that, it's going to be very uh, neutral in regards to left and right and ups and downs. They all have to be designed depending on dependent on which way you're going to travel. Yeah. But uh, so the next thing you do is you center line it, the course. Yeah. You cut about a foot, foot and a half wide. Mm -hmm. So you can look through all of the whatever you're going to be able seeing. Yeah. And then um, and you start bulldozing. Yeah. So what direction did he decide he wanted to run? Oh, we, the way we're running it now. The south, yeah. the north to yeah. south. Yeah. And do you know when the, the they went back and forth for many years at some point? Uh, yes, they did, but I can't tell you. Yeah. Yeah. But and, that, and then within two or three years yeah. of cutting the trail, we had to cut it again. So how wide did you cut it the first time? It was uh, like eight, 10 feet, 8, so 10 So three, three yeah. tracks, three, cla three classic tracks. Yeah. 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 And, of course, we didn't have skating then. Yeah. But then the race grew so fast, we had to go where it is now, that wide. Yeah. Okay, so you have both platforms, uh, multiple, two, two classic and the skating platforms. Even early on. And now they have two trails. Yeah. So the races, you know, demanded, which is going to work to their favor with this snow situation they're having now, I think. Yeah. You'd be able to ski down one trail and come back come up back the other trail the other and minutes. go to the start and finish. And, yeah. And... Uh, depending on what they do for snowmaking. And I yep. hope the hell that's at the top of the list. They Apparently they are starting to do some snowmaking for the areas that lose, lose snow, so we're probably but, uh, talking about I, that. I don't think that's enough. Yeah. Well, it's no. gonna so be... anyway, that's not what we're discussing. Yep. <laughs> well, right, so right. anyway, so then we started the bulldozing and the, the logging, and um, I was there for a lot of that, mm -hmm. and uh, especially the bulldozing uh, for shaping. And, but yep. one of the... <laughs> the and I don't know geology whatsoever. Yeah. But I can tell you, when a glacier backed off that didn't leave any rocks, hmm. my gosh, and there was no water. Right. Mosquito Brook. That's, the only, that's yep. the only culvert. That's the only bridge. There might be a culvert now and then, but I, I didn't put any in. Didn't have to. Yeah. So it's a, it was a very easy trail to, to, to build. Yeah. Very easy. Uh, and, and the material, the loam, the sandy loam, or, you know, just to shape, you know, mm -hmm. and have the right bends and the right cambers, um, real easy to do. Um, and that was pretty much it for me. But he had also, Tony was, okay, <laughs> going, that my hands going around like his yeah, brain yeah. was going around. So he was um, starting to think about World Cups. Sure. Okay. Um, World Loppet. Mm hmm All those things. And uh, so I spent a lot of time there Yeah. Uh, in the 70s and 80s uh, because I en then ended up developing and designing the World Cup Trail. Right. Which became a, a monster. And one of, one of, part of which is named after you. So yes. That's, yeah. Yeah. But. And that was 78 they had the World Cups there, I think? Yeah. The first it was, World Cups. Uh, it was, uh, nobody can agree on whether it was a World Cup or not. Um, and what what was your goal with those trails? Do those trails have some just uh, some big hills and some some fun corners on yeah, them? Yeah, and crazy stuff. Yeah, I mean, was that Tony uh, saying make it as crazy as you can, or was that what your? Koki wanted to build an old fashioned trail. Mm -hmm. You know, this wide, six, six feet, track. six feet wide. Yeah, yeah, six feet, eight feet wide, mm -hmm. single track, and um, my trail uh, had to be built so that it was. 
at least double tracked. Yeah. Uh, and it had some, you know, it was international, is what it yep. was. And uh, uh, I can't remember the feedback, but I don't think I got any bad feedback on it. Yep. So, yeah. If I remember correctly, you go out and within about a half kilometer, you're shooting down a hill with an elevator shaft off the other side. That's the elevator. Yep. No, the elevator shaft was the, the thing that the went downhill, down. and then you pop right oh, back yeah, up. Yeah. You had yeah. a hell of a transition. Yeah. And if you weren't right, you were upside down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, I can tell you I stood there a number, any number of times deciding whether I would put it in the trail or not. And whether it was, you know, because he had so much, it's such forestation, you know, you can say, well, I'm going to try this. Yeah. Okay. You got to try it after you cut it. You can't be out there cutting two or three different. So it worked. Yeah. But I can tell you there were some flat noses that came out of that. Mm-hmm. They didn't throw them backwards, but but trying to overcorrect, they went whoosh, face plants. Yeah, a lot of face plants. So <clears throat> that, that was all of it was exciting. Yeah, you know, and what and then what he was doing with it, you know, it wasn't something that he developed and wasn't used. Yeah, he made sure that everything was being used. The other thing about Tony that was that I came came to re recognize was. He couldn't keep a dollar in his pocket. Yeah. Whenever he got some money from the government or whatever, he was spending it. Yeah. And that's why he was who he was. Yeah. And uh, he's a monumental man. Europeans don't have a clue about him. Probably really totally forgotten about him. But when it came to the World Cup and the World Loppet, I mean, he was the mover groover guy on all of that. And uh, um, and. And everything around any kind of I mean, race, he made it bigger. He made it better. Yeah. Um, uh, well, he got the Berkey. Gijigami Games. Yep. If you if you never and the other thing that was, um, the culture mm -hmm. of the area was always Gijigami Games was the Indians. Yep. Okay, and they were included. Uh, uh, in all of the festivities, uh, he was he was a remar remarkable. He was way ahead of his time, just way yeah. ahead of his time. Oh, and um, I I loved that guy. He was yeah. He was pretty pretty special. So no, I I for ten years back and forth. Yeah. And tons of phone calls with Tony. You know, you know, my deal with him was, I'll tell you what I think, you do what you want and think, I don't care. You know, yep. it's not going to piss me off that you um, did something different than what I suggested because you're talking to a lot of people. I know you, and that's the way you are, and that's the way your environment is. I went back for the experience, the excitement, the, yep. the fun. And I got to the point where... My last four or five trips were with a friend from who lives in Lake Placid. He and I are big buds. So I'd go to the Gatineau race, and we'd hop in his car and drive out, mm -hmm. do a road trip. And then we uh, also did a road trip with another friend of mine that I've had since. Uh, his name's Peter Davis, and his wife Nancy uh, made friends with them in 67, 68, 69. Uh, and so we've, been, so we've done some road trips out yep. there, too. And Ron Burgeon... Do you know Ron Burgeon? I don't know. Okay, he's a press. He uh, used to. He owned or put out uh, 
uh, Cross Country Skier Magazine. Sure. Okay. Yep. And so he lives in Cable, and we stay mm -hmm. with him. Uh, no, it's a happening. Just a you know. Yeah. The excitement, uh, you know, being in his basement, waxing skis, and the both guys, <laughs> really not Peter and and uh, Ron, not wanting each other to know what they were doing for wax. I mean. <laughs> Can you believe that? Can you believe that? Yeah, yeah. No, well, I think that's... So, and the wives raced. The mm -hmm. wives raced. Mine doesn't, but um, Peter's did and uh, Ron's did. Yep. And um, so um, uh, it, it brought us together, real friends. Um, so, um, I mean, uh, the, the power of the race is huge, really huge. So I'm trying to get so that I can get... I'm 80 years old now. First year of my class, mm -hmm. I want to go to the World Masters, yep. uh, but I've had some uh, interesting, th you know, people tell me I don't look like I'm 80, but what's that's on the outside. What's going on on the inside is what's what's important. Yep. So I've had some situations, and um, I think I'm over them, or have conquered them, and uh, I know for a while there I, could, I couldn't train. I wasn't, I had no physiology. Yeah, and uh, so now I'm back on track and um, doing all the right things, and um, hope I'm gonna. I won't. I'm not sure what'll happen this year. Right now, I got to get through the World Masters. Yeah, get that taken care of. What do you think of? Uh, what do you, what do you, what are you looking at with this year's Olympics? Uh, with the teams going over. Uh, with what the U.S. With team the US should team. be able to do. Yeah, I, I I'm I'm out on. I'm willing to go out on. A, the girls should get two or three medals. Yeah, maybe as much as four. Okay. Yeah. Um, the boys, I think, will get a medal. Yeah. Good and been training well and have good. Well, it's just who they are. Mm -hmm. You know, and I've, you know, haven't heard much about them. Like they're in Europe right now. Barely hear anything about the fact that they're in Europe, unless you know how to put your nose to the grind, you know, mm -hmm. to the, the telephone or whatever. And they're going to start racing, I think, tomorrow. Um, I I think the men can get a, a sprint medal. Yeah. Maybe a team sprint medal. Uh, the women, of course, there's a whole bunch of things that they can do. And it just depends if they can win distance races, they can win sprints, get a medal in the relay. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a matter of, you know, getting it all right for those two weeks. Yeah. And that's, you know... When you think of four years come down to two weeks, a lot of pressure. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, but I think they're mature enough. Mm -hmm. They've done enough. Uh, you know, have had good results. They know how. I mean, I, the way you watch them race, they're uh, very aggressive racers. Uh, they're not afraid to take a challenge on during a race or go and take, go out and try and get something that maybe they're not gonna get. But they'll at least go and try and get it, and you won't get it if you don't. That was kind of weird words, but <laughs> if you don't try, you won't get it. And, yeah. and they're they're capable of doing that. And then they've got a couple of horses, um, Diggins. They always put her on the third leg. I'd put her on the fourth leg because she's your best skier. And if you need something special out of that fourth leg person, she'd be the one who could go and get it and uh, dig the deepest for the longest. Yeah. Yeah, and so I, and um, she talks about a classic technique not being good, but she's strong enough so that it, she can overpower a technique. Yeah. 
physiology comes before her um, techni technique. Um, they, uh, the biggest thing now is stay healthy. Yep. Just stay healthy as you can. Uh, and of course that's hard with what they do because they're in Europe. Um, it's going to be interesting to see if any of them come back during the winter. Mm -hmm. And um, whether it would be sickness that would make them do that or they just... The one person I think that possibly could do that would be Keegan. Yeah. Because of the baby, the baby boy. Mm -hmm. And um, But um, she's about as tough as I come to. Yeah. So I'm... Uh, uh, I, I'm I'm looking for good things. Koki's medal, in my estimation, won't be the only one after this trip. That's a, I think that's a good way to put it. Well, I think that's uh, that's a hope that all of us have. Yeah. All right. Um, I think that's that's probably that's great. Thank you so much for uh, for for sitting down to chat, and no uh, maybe we'll do this another time and talk about more about the Berkey. Okay. But uh, are we going to see you out in Hayward or in Cable in Hayward one of these days? Oh, you definitely. If I if things go well. It ain't gonna be too big a turnaround to go back out there. No, right. and I, I'll try, try and get my buddy uh, Chris Beatty to go with me, <laughs> do a road trip again. But he may be going, his wife might be going with him this year. So that would probably. But uh, if I'm capable, I'll be there. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I need some more bibs and some more banners and <laughs> medals and stuff. Oh. Yeah. Thanks, Marty. We'll be back soon with some episodes focusing on climate change in the Berkey and lots more in January as we get closer to the race. Happy holidays and of course happy skiing to everyone. As always, our podcast was produced by Sam Evans-Brown of New Hampshire Public Radio, who also hosts the Outside In podcast about the natural world and how we use it. They recently had a series about the history of hydropower in Quebec. And if you think that sounds like a dry subject, I promise you it's very interesting. And if you're like me and you think it's interesting, well, it's even better than you'd imagine. You can find their podcast on iTunes or Spotify or at OutsideInRadio.org, and they have a bunch of pictures from going way up north in Quebec there. Our intro music is new, and it's from Tusk Lord, uh, and it's from the Free Music Archive, but we're open to suggestions. Let us know if you have any other songs out there you think we should use, or any comments in general. We've actually set up an email account. This is big news. Info at BerkeyGuide.com. So send an email there. Thanks. Thanks.